I have a pop quiz for you tonight. Is God multiple choice? A, absent, B, distant, or C, present? Is God absent, distant, or present? Now, hold off on your answer. Don't go too quickly. You have to finish the test, at least read through it before you answer it, because there could be a trick in here. King Herod, the wise men, the scribes in Matthew chapter 2, which we read earlier, they knew the answer. It's C. In fact, he's so present, you can just go skip hop down the road to Bethlehem and find him. Okay, a lot of good that did them. The wise men answered present and decided to be with him. Herod answers present and decides to kill him. And the scribes answer present and apparently don't care to even check him out. So, I'm glad you know that God's present, but what I'm more interested in and the way to pass this quiz is... What does that mean in your life and how does that look? You can tell me the right things, but can you walk in the reality of the right things? See, presence isn't a concept. It's a reality. Presence is something you enter into. It's something you share with. It's something that presses in upon your own life. And that, friends, is the problem with presence, is that it's not mild. It's not just here, lukewarm, Presence can be like a pebble in your shoe. Presence can be that thing that cramps your style. Or you know when you're at a movie, or you're on the airplane, or you're at church, and that person is not giving you the elbow room you prefer. Presence can restrict, it can hinder, it can limit, it can be felt in ways that we don't want. In short, the problem with presence is that it is disruptive. Presence is disruptive. I'm going along my merry way. And, well, you've done this before. Maybe you're at the mall. It's crazy right now, I hear. But, and it's that chicken match. There's only room, so much room for both of you to pass. And you're waiting to see who is going to give first. Sometimes it doesn't end well. But see, it's disruptive. I have a path, I have a way, I have an idea, yet there's a presence which is causing my aim to be disrupted. And unfortunately, because we prefer to put our ideas first and our wants and our conception of how we're trying to bend the universe our way, God can become a problematic presence in our lives. He can be disruptive. Now, Micah is our poet, our prophet of presence. And he writes that God is present among us. And he shows us this in some complex ways. One being in Israel's reaction to God's presence. The dis, this, this, this disruption of his presence is causing Israel to live in a variety of different ways. God's become the pebble in their shoe. So what do they do? They kick the shoe off and empty the pebble out. See, the reason presence can be disruptive is because God is 
or presence, and especially God, is active. He's dynamic. He's a flow. He's an active, dynamic flow. Presence is moving and breathing. But sometimes we treat God like he's a passive, static status quo. It's just like, yeah, he's, he's in my life. I carry him with me. I've got him in my heart and my head. And like, he's there. He's there. And, and what we really want as humans is we want God to be there, but we want him to fit within the status quo. In other words, don't let anything change. Keep everything as I've got it. I want to have the control I've worked so hard to establish over this and that. I want to hold on to that. I don't want some being to press in or disrupt that. I've worked hard to keep hold of this. Then he disrupts. We want the status quo. The status quo is comforting. It's very comforting. It's, oh, I know exactly what to expect. I've got my pulse on this. And when I walk in there, it's going to be exactly as I want. And I place this there and it's there. And as I say, things go. I love the status quo. It's so comforting. It gives me security. But the status quo is also deadening. It's numbing. It causes you to become a passive, static being who never grows and never changes. And the problem is, is that the Holy Spirit, God's presence, God himself is always moving. He's a dynamic, pulsating activity, C.S. Lewis said. Notice in the Bible, the Spirit's referred to as wind. Can you control that? Can you stop that? Can you predict that? Wind is always moving. It comes, it goes. He's also described as water. Water flows, it moves, it comes, it goes. These are things you can't hold and restrain. So the problem with presence, as Micah addresses to Israel, is that it's disruptive. And it won't allow you to stay in the status quo. Because God looks at us and says, no, you need a change. We need growth. We need forward movement with him. So he won't let us remain stationary. His presence will nudge and push and insert itself into your shoe and whatever it takes to get you to notice him. You're either going to keep running away or you're going to say, okay, what are you trying to get at? So in Micah, the ways we see this happening is... Micah has three parts, and you know that this is, he has, if you will, he has three chapters. Now, my Bible, yours too, I assume, has Micah in seven chapters, but Micah wrote in three phases, and you can see it in the text. If you will look at verse one, chapter one, verse two, you see the word hear, or it might say listen in your translation. Chapter one, verse two says, hear, you people's All of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. That word here is the Hebrew Shema, which is also in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, when God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Um, That's the same word. He says, Hear. Then, we know he's in section number 2, because in chapter 3, verse 1, he again says, Hear. You heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So it's 3 verse 1. Then the third and final section of Micah comes in chapter 6. In verse 1. And there again, Shema. Hear what Yahweh says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. 
and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, hear, hear. Micah understands that if there is a presence among us, we need to listen. And so he calls Israel to hear. Also, it's kind of a running joke lately, I guess. I had commented a couple weeks ago at how the chapters are man-made, like where we put the chapters and verses. And in, I, don't, I think we're in Joel. And in Joel, it's very evident that they missed, they put them in some pretty poor places. And then Denny picked that up last week and said the same thing about Jonah. Well, you might have just noticed tonight, they got Micah right. Here ends up at the first part of each of those chapter headings. So that's pretty good. Just so you know. Okay. So, end footnote. Um, Micah. So Micah is one of what they call, it's the quartet of prophets. Because there are three other contemporaries with Micah during this time. He's prophesying alongside Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. Isaiah, which we had done a few months ago, the big long prophet. Hosea, which we did a couple weeks ago to open the minor prophets. That was the risk of relationship. And Amos, which the plan is to get to next week. Those three are alongside Micah. Now, interesting is that Isaiah prophesied in the king's courts. He was a well-known man with big connections. And so he had a big thundering voice and he had a big long book of prophecies as a result. Isaiah was somebody, he's, if you will, he, he was like your pop prophet. Except his message wasn't always welcomed, but he was well known. Who's a prophet? Oh, Isaiah is a prophet. Who else? Have you ever heard of Micah? No. Who's Micah? Micah is one of those nerdy, like, grassroots, underground, non-mainstream prophets. Micah is the opposite of Isaiah. They're prophesying at the same time. In fact, many of their verses are verbatim between Micah and Isaiah. And you may notice in places where they're the same. You're like, we heard that before. But Micah is not in the king's palace. He's not well connected with the important people. Micah is a country bumpkin in a town that's 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He's in the hill country. They call it the Shephelah. It's the rolling hill country of Judea. And he's out there in the country in a farmhouse. That's his setting. So you see in verse 1 of Micah, Micah 1 verse 1, it says that the word of Yahweh came to Micah of Moresheth. In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, Moresheth, that's his small town. I like that. I, I, and I think you do too, because we're small town folk. And we are country folk. We're not quite hillbillies. We're more like rugged, we're more like rugged mountain people. Amen. Take that country. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, we understand, we understand the concept of, all right, LA is where the glitz and glamour is. This LA is where we have, it's calmer and quiet. And you know people when you go get your mail and go buy bread at Jensen's. And then you make excuses. Oh, I'm only here for one thing, because we all know you go to Stater Brothers. But 
So Micah, Micah comes from the small town, and he's got a lot of like down-to-earth, almost parable style. Like Jesus is down-to-earth stories. His, his visions are down-to-earth. His metaphors are down-to-earth. Um, and it, his book is obviously smaller. So Micah is a contemporary of those four. I don't remember if I told you his date. He's in the later 700s. Remember, B.C. works backwards. So this is 735 to 700. This is over 100 years before Jerusalem crumbles before the Babylonians. So we're about a century out from all that, which we had seen in um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay, and with that, um, let's look at what he has to say. So real quick rundown of what the book says. Let's look at the first section, chapter 1, verse 2. This is where he's largely warning them about coming destruction. Okay, so here I want you to see what Mike is up against. So chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord Yahweh be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For, behold, the Yahweh is coming out of his holy place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this, all this chaos coming for the transgression of Jacob. That's a nickname for Israel. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Now, Samaria, you remember King Solomon brought the kingdom up to its height where silver was so abundant, people used it to pave their driveways. Remember King Solomon? Well, after him, his son was foolish and there was another opportunist who had political ambitions. Between the two of them, the kingdom was split and 10 of the tribes went uh, and made Samaria their capital and then Judah and Benjamin remained in Jerusalem. So we had this split. Now, Samaria never followed God. And of all their kings, not one of them do do the Chronicles record that any of them followed God as David did. Not one. They're all bad. They're all filthy. They're all rotten. And then what what they do, the first thing they set up is in order so that people don't go back to Jerusalem to the temple, they set up two golden calves. Oh, that sounds like the wilderness days when Moses got really upset. And they were idolaters ever since. Climaxing when King Ahab of the Omri dynasty marries Queen Jezebel, who happens to be a huge fan of the Baal cult. And she brings the Baal cult with her into the palace of King Ahab. And the northern country, Samaria, just goes to hell in a handbasket. And so during Micah's prophecy, in the smack dab middle of his time period, Samaria is going to fall and be annihilated by the Assyrians. And the Assyrian Empire is going to scatter the Jews to every corner of the earth and bring people to their place, um, Assyrian people, so that basically they breed the Samaritan nation out of existence. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, Samaritans and Jews don't have good relations because the Jews don't even see the Samaritans as Jews. And there's your backstory. 
Okay, so verse 5 said, All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And then this one. And what is the high place of Judah? So now he's turning his attention to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. You too are guilty. What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Let me decode some Bible slang here. High place is Bible slang for the place you do naughty things with the pagan gods. So when he says, what is the high place of Judah? Where is their naughty little pagan hangout? (laughs) Micah then says, is it not Jerusalem? Okay, that's offensive and scandalous because the Jews hearing this would say, whoa, dude, wait a minute. Jerusalem is where Yahweh's temple is. How dare you say that that's the high place? And that's Micah's point. You guys are so off the rails that even the temple has become a pagan high place to you. That's what he's up against. Verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Yeah, so that's what's coming up. Warning, destruction. So here are some more of the reasons. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. (laughs) Okay, it might sound weird, but the bed is usually a place where you rest from your day's labor, right? So if they're working evil on their bed, what does it say about what they're doing when the sun's up? So that's how wicked they are, that even the place of rest has become a place for conceiving evil. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. In other words, the rich are basically saying, I want that, and they take it. And who's stopping them? Not the rulers. The rulers are in on this. In fact, um, behind this may very well be King Ahab, whom we had already mentioned. Do you remember what King Ahab did? He did this very thing. He saw the field of Naboth, just apparently the vineyard right next to his little palace. And he's like, ooh, I want that. Give it to me. And Nabal goes, I'm not going to give it to you. And then Ahab goes home weeping like a little whipped boy. Woo-hoo-hoo, Nabal won't give me what I want. Tantrum, toddler. And his wife comes and says, oh, come on, be a king. Man up. I'll take care of this. And so Jezebel arranges a feast, invites Naboth, and the two henchmen she hires right next to him take him out during dinner. And then she, says, she basically hands the keys to Ahab and says, done like a man. And um, Ahab takes a vineyard. He wants it. So there's some hints at, there's an example of that actually happening in Micah's day. Now, also in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, we see that even the religious people are nuts. They say, do not preach. Uh, Oops, wait, you know what? This wouldn't make sense unless you look at verse 4. 
So in that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of Yahweh. In short, look, if you're going to take land from the poor, God's going to take the land from you. You're going to lose it. And Samaria does lose it. And eventually Jerusalem loses it. Okay, so Micah's saying that's going to happen. But then the prophets say in verse 6, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So all the religious leaders are basically saying, Micah's wrong, Micah's wrong, Micah's wrong. Don't listen to him. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, or chapter 3, verse 1, uh, here's... Here's where we get to the second part of the book, but it continues with some sins, so we'll focus on that right now. 3 verse 1, it says, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Ooh, it's bad. And then in verse 5, thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Verse 5, in summary, is saying the prophets will preach what you pay them to preach. As long as the offerings keep flowing in, we will declare prosperity and peace for all. But woe to you who don't give us anything to eat. It's nothing but curses and damnation and war upon you. Isn't that nice? Okay. And then in verse 12, we'll end uh, the sin section here. No, we'll do one more after this. Uh, In 3 verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Zion's the mountain of Jerusalem. Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. In other words, the temple will be gone, Jerusalem will be gone, that whole mount will just be a wooded height, just wilderness again. Now that verse is significant, because nearly a hundred years later, you see this exact verse appear in Jeremiah chapter 26 verse 18. This verse, Jeremiah records this verse from Micah in his book, and he records the elders of Judah, of Jerusalem, saying, quoting this verse to, um, um, oh boy, I forgot who they're saying it to. Um, they throw Jeremiah in prison, and then they say, wait a minute, but Micah, Micah prophesied against this place, and the king Hezekiah didn't throw Micah into prison, so why are we throwing Jeremiah in prison for prophesying against Jerusalem? This doesn't make sense. And then they quote that verse to prove Micah did prophesy against our place. So interesting. I love it when you see the Bible within the Bible, and it's inter-conversation. Okay, one more section where we see how their sin is working. Go all the way to chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16, it says, For you have kept the statutes of Omri. Omri was the first king of a dynasty of kings. And the works of the house of Ahab. 
Ahab was part of the Omri dynasty. So they're accused of never changing their path from Ahab and his dynasty. You want to know how bad Ahab was? I gave you a couple examples, but listen to this. In 1 Kings 16, verse 30. 1 Kings 16, 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. What? He did more evil than all who were before him. And that was a long line of bad kings. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, another bad king, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Here, Israel, here's just another god for you. And Ahab made an Asherah. It's a very sexual thing in a pagan ceremony. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So in a long history of bad kings, Ahab is the cherry on top. And Micah says, you guys are just like Ahab. Nothing has changed. That's what he's up against. So he talks about the destruction to come. Then in part two, which starts in chapter three, he talks about the disturbance to come. Then in chapter six, which is the last part, he talks about the coming deliverance. And I want to highlight um, the best part. It's the end of chapter seven, the end of the book. We see a foreshadow of the deliverance to come. So look at 718. So Micah has a lot of good to say too. He says, who is a God like you? By the way, who is like God is what Micah means, his name. So now he just basically throws out, Micah, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He wants to love. He wants to forgive. This is his passion. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That verse 19, you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. This is what Jesus has done. It has come to pass. Now, what's interesting is that the Jews, even today, practice um, something called tashlik. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, because it wasn't in my Hebrew studies. But um, they, they practice this on Rosh Hashanah. And that's where they take, this practice is where they take a, a piece of bread, and they'll throw it into water and watch the water take it away. And that is there enacting this promise in this verse, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So they'll take the bread and throw it like their sins into the water and watch it go away. We will get to do that with bread and grape juice um, because we are reminded that Jesus has taken our sins and he's utterly chucked them into the cosmic waste bin. Okay, so... You have, a, you have a prophet of coming destruction. You have a prophet of coming deliverance. 
But Micah was also in the middle where these things swirl together. And here's the problem. We want status quo. We want security. We want everything predictable. But then the presence of God presses in and it makes things a little confusing and tight. And sometimes things aren't clear when this happens. We get visions of destruction. We get visions of deliverance. And so Micah's middle section of his prophecy is this this convergence of both of those ideas. And so he jumps back and forth between destruction and deliverance, destruction and deliverance, even within two verses. It's that dramatic because he's feeling the disturbance or the disruption, I should say, of the presence of God in the midst of their people. So yes, the presence is going to bring destruction because they are going the opposite direction. They're going headlong toward the danger that the presence is trying to hold them back from. Yet the presence is also going ahead of them as a safety net to catch them when they fall. And so we see the two spiraling around. And so I want you to now look at chapter 4 in Micah and see... um, how Micah is now going to promise. We saw that there's a problem with presence, but now Micah is going to promise that the presence will not forsake them. It will be with them. And this presence will deliver on their behalf. So chapter four, verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, that's not to say Mount Everest is going to be small compared to this, and we're all going to need oxygen tanks to get up to Jerusalem. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jerusalem's going to be the most important of all the mountains. It's going to be the center of the earth. And people shall flow to it. Verse 2. Many nations shall say, uh, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree. And it goes on. There we see a few things. One, Jerusalem's going to be the center of the earth. The nations are going to come to it. It's going to be the highest, the most important place. Two, we see that God, which we now, because the New Testament know it will be God and Jesus, Jesus is going to be the judge between many peoples. So he, that means he's going to be the king. He's going to determine what happens. He's going to settle scores. He's going to make everything right and even. And third, there will be peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, we say at Christmas. That's to come. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And fourth, prosperity. You saw in verse 4, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Now that's, again, that's Bible slang for the good life. You might envision that as swinging your golf club on the green or poolside with a nice iced tea with a slice of lime on a nice little lawn chair or, I don't know, I don't know what your dreams are, your vision of the good life, the white picket fence, whatever. But this, for the Jews, was their way of saying, 
the good life, the prosperous life, was everyone having their own tree to sit under. That is what is coming. But it gets kind of confusing because in 4 verse 9, Micah gives us three scenarios. 4 9, exile's coming. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Micah's making fun of the people. He's saying, what? There's no king for you to call on? No, they had a king. He's saying, is God not your king? Why aren't you calling on him? Verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon. There you go. Very clearly he's saying, you're going to fall, and you're going to go a long way and live with the Babylonians. And we saw that happen with Ezekiel. There, but there's hope. There you shall be rescued. Where? In Babylon you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Bad news, good news. Right there in a span of two verses. Now look at verse 11. Now, many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know that the thought, but they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to be of the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples. So there it goes on to say, they're coming up against you, but they're just like wheat that needs to be threshed so that the chaff comes off of the grain. So when they finally come around you, you're just going to what they would actually do sometimes is they would have a sled with these little like hobs, nails and stuff on the bottom and they would drag that over the wheat and it would separate the chaff and the wheat. And sometimes they would put a kid on it. It's like a sled and they would pull it and it, yay, and the wheat would be threshed. And so that's basically like, Israel, here are your enemies, thresh, and they will be judged. These, these back-to-back visions are just all over the place. And then here's the third back-to-back vision. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Wow. So now we get the passage that is cited in Matthew. When everyone's wondering, where is the Messiah to be born? They're like, oh yeah, well, Micah told us in Bethlehem. And so even within this vision, It's following visions of exile, of enemies gathering, then of Israel's victory, and then it's coming in this vision, verse 1, we saw that there's troops to be mustered because Israel's going to be under attack, and then all of a sudden it shifts against you. Wait a minute. But from your lowliest little city will come forth one from of old to be a ruler. Now verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So when this ruler comes out of Bethlehem, 
Yeah, there's going to be some labor pains until the time, but then when he comes, the brothers of Israel and the sisters who've been scattered in exile will come home to him. And in verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, we've seen other visions from Micah about how things are going to be good, but this one's different. This one's different because it starts to say that God himself isn't just going to do good things for them. He isn't just going to deliver them like he's going to push a button from some factory way out in another land. He's going to be among them. He's going to come to them. And he's not just going to come to the palaces of Jerusalem or the palaces of whoever's the hot shot in the world at that time. He's going to come to a, I shouldn't even call it a city, to a settlement, to a hamlet in the hills of the wilderness, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is so lowly, so lowly, that when Joshua is giving out the inheritance to the tribe of Judah, Joshua chapter 15, you can look at this, Bethlehem is not even mentioned in their inheritance. Other important cities are mentioned. Oh, they get this city and that city. Bethlehem was totally overlooked. It's just like, oh yeah, those huts up there on the hill. If you want that. That's how low Bethlehem is. And here is our country boy prophet who's trying to tell the people, listen up. This is a God who's present and he's going to come to us. There's a promise of his presence to come because God does not want us stuck in the static, passive status quo that we're all trying to relegate God over there so we can stay in. He wants to disrupt us so that we will change. Because reading all the many verses I took the time to read to you, it's proof we need a change. We're more like Ahab than we are like our own God. And so he's coming to lead us to change. And this is what Christmas says. And this is what the Christian doctrine, we call it incarnation, says. Incarnation is not a word we use a lot. In carne, in flesh, in meat. That's what it means. In meat mint, in flesh mint. A word that maybe we use more often is embodiment. This is what Christmas is, is that the promise of presence wasn't just declared, I'm here! If you notice me, it came in a human body so that we can utterly recognize and identify it. And we can't deny that it's here because it's not in some other plane of existence or some other level of consciousness, but it's here with us, among us, and as us. And as one writer said, that God and Jesus became what he most loved, human His pursuit and love for us turned him into one of us. And as C.S. Lewis says, that God became man to turn creatures into sons. God became man to turn creatures into sons. In other words, the promise of presence that God becomes man, the promise of presence is so that we do not have to live in this static, passive status quo level of existence He came, the promise of presence, to push us out of that and to be changed, to be transformed, to go from just a lowly creature to a son, a daughter of the king of the universe. That's 
the promise of presence. And the beautiful thing is that this hillbilly preacher says that this presence is not so big that it ignores the lowly folk. It comes to Bethlehem. It starts in Bethlehem so that we can hold the promise that his coming, his presence is to turn us from creatures into sons for even country folk like us. There's no criteria for who's worthy. America has a preference for certain locations. Culture seems to come from certain places. Trends are established in certain cities. But the promise of presence, the promise of Emmanuel, the incarnation, the embodiment of the glory of God in human flesh came to a place so lowly that Joshua didn't record it as the inheritance of Israel. That's the promise of presence. And it's here as the rock in our shoe to say, I'm not trying to annoy you. I'm just saying you're on the wrong path. Um, Looking at it a little bit closer here, if you look at verse 2 in the middle, it says, For you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So, Probably what this means in the Hebrew mind is David was our great king. Ancient days, from of old, he's coming from that line. He's that type of ruler. And Matthew goes out of the way to say that, yes, Jesus is the son of David. He's from that lineage. He's not Omri and Ahab. He's not that sort of ruler. He's the man after God's own heart sort of ruler. But Christians have often read this, whether rightly or not, uh, that his coming forth from of old, from ancient days, refers to his John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. It could be that ancient, that coming of old. In other words, eternity past. And if that's so, I really like what I read this week from Anselm. He was a, like 1100s, our time, AD, um, a theologian from the 1100s, like medieval times. And he said this, this really gripped me. I thought this is the best definition I've ever heard of what eternity is. He says, true eternity, true eternity is boundless life, all existing at once. So you think of the collapsing of time into one pinpoint, all the joy, the pleasure, the the wonderful fullness and richness, it all, this boundless life, all existing at once. Jesus came forth from that to Bethlehem. And now you know the story. As if Bethlehem wasn't low enough, none of the fancy inns, not even the Motel 6, had room. Okay. In light of this great promise of the presence, we saw the problem, and it can be irritating that God is a presence, and he wants to be with us, and he wants to move us, and he wants to change us. That can be a problem if you don't want to get on the program with him. But we also see the promise that it's here to lead us into, into God's future, God's resolution for the conflict of the world. Now, finally, we need to see if we pass this quiz I offered you. Is God absent, distant, or present? Is he absent, distant, or present? 
So we need to see now how Micah tells us to practice the presence. How do we practice the presence of God? Here's the promise, and we saw that this has come true. The babe was born in Bethlehem, and the angels even declared, For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and you shall find him in Bethlehem. Now, he gives us the way to practice this presence, um, because look, James says even demons believe, right, and tremble. Herod believed. The scribes and Pharisees believed, but only the wise men walked. Only the wise men showed up and worshipped. So how do we practice his presence? We, if you acknowledge that God is C, present, and he's not absent or distant, how do you practice this? He answers it for us in chapter 6, verse 8. Probably the most famous passage in Micah. 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do three things? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I love the New King James on this one. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. It just just has a poetic ring to it. It's easier to remember. This is what it looks like to practice the presence of God. This is what it looks like not to just say, I believe in the incarnation and celebrate Christmas. It's to embody that belief that God came in a body, so God wants to live in your body, and God wants to be God through your body. What does that look like? How do I practice that? It's not just, oh, yes, yes, our doctrine about how God's unique because he actually came to earth to be one of us, blah, 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 blah. It's actually, we start to look like him. So we do justly. We love mercy, and we walk humbly. But don't miss the verses above this. They're highly interesting. So if verse 8 is what it looks like to answer our quiz, God is C, present, verse 6 and 7 is what it looks like to answer God is either A, absent, or B, distant. What would that answer look like? It's verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The implication is not good enough. Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? No. Shall I give uh, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Fortunately, Micah says no and says he has already shown you what to do because the promise of presence is is enacted in acts of justice, mercy, and humility. But you see, if God is absent or distant, my approach to him and my lifestyle will be one of stay off my back. So I'm going to do what it takes to keep you where you are and keep me where I am. So we kind of pay God off. Okay, cool. I will give you, I mean, we wouldn't do this literal example, but we have our own. I'm going to give you a calf. Happy now, stay off my back. Get out of my shoe. Oh, I was really bad this time, or he's really pressing on me, so 10,000 rams. 
get away. It's like, oh, cool. Now I feel calm. Like, I feel like I'm a pretty decent chap. Like, God must be kind of happy with me. So we can continue on with our lives. See, if God is absent, I can do all these little things that make me feel good. Like, oh, cool. There's no hounding presence from heaven. If God is distant, then all I've got to do is fire a little, like, tribute to him, like you do with your, um, no knock on this, but the people you don't talk to very often, you send a Christmas card every once in a while. You're like, I'm remembering you. We do that with God, like, you're distant, but you're just checking in. You're still there. Good. Okay. I'll keep on going my way. But see, an actual present God demands certain things of us, not because he's looking to see whether you're worthy or not to meet the demand, but because he's inviting you into a new way of living, a new life, something that you were meant to have. He's trying to invite you into the graduation from creature to child of God. Okay, so then what does it look like to practice his presence, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly? Now, to do justly and to love mercy is very, very, very similar in Hebrew thought. To be merciful to someone is also to show justice to someone. So one of the best ways to break this down is two ways. First is to recognize that the word mercy in my Bible says kindness. And to look at the footnote it gives me to see that it says the uh, or steadfast love which I already know because I've done my homework, and I know you've done this too because we were in Hosea. Do you remember what kindness, steadfast love means? Do you remember that in Hebrew? It's hesed. It's God's unrelenting love toward his wayward people. We are meant to love hesed. So justice is like this. Justice is something that happens when there's a judge. So to live justly means to live as if you are before the judge in all of your actions. That's what it means to live justly. That would mean God is present, wouldn't it? To love mercy would be to interact on a relational basis with others the way God has enacted with us relationally. Hesed. Or to put another way, I think it was Albert Barnes who said, um, justice, is a, justice is asking the question, what is the right thing to do? And mercy is asking the question, what would love do? So justice is concerned with right, and mercy is concerned with love. Um, or the way I like to think of it is, justice is who I am before God, and mercy is me being for people. Because here's the thing. When God is not present in my practice, when he's kind of like, I feel abandoned, or he's over there, or I'm not very connected with him right now, what happens is I feel like the world's against me. I feel like people, not everyone, but certainly specific people, are against me. And it's like a war, and it's me versus them. But to love mercy means that I am walking before a present God and I'm realizing I am for people, not against them. So to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I love, love, love how one um, commentator put this. He said, to walk humbly with God is 
to take God more seriously than yourself? What does it look like to take God more seriously than yourself? Well, when I'm proud and I feel like I got something to prove or to defend, I take myself way too seriously. You know what I loved about worship tonight? Um, I didn't quite hear what happened, but I know Sandy started the song wrong. (laughs) Or Richard did. (laughs) And they laughed. I loved that. That's not taking yourself too seriously. Taking yourself too seriously is like, you see the worship leader get all irritated, like, we've practiced this 15 times, come on. Or just showing like some sort of like, we couldn't get it right. Well, listen, when God is distant, yeah, you're trying to get things right. But when he's present, we can laugh because God is laughter. And we're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're taking him seriously. And we know that God is pleased with us being with him. He's not pleased with perfect performance. The Pharisees never laugh. I mean, we don't really know. We didn't see jokes being cracked and mistakes being made in the Gospels. But I'm pretty sure they were the people who would have frowned upon those things. They're taking life too seriously. And the people who take life too seriously are the people who see life as a mission to get everything right, to put myself in the place where I am finally making things better. I'm making myself better. And so we have no tolerance for mistakes. We have no tolerance for stepbacks or backsliding because we're way too serious. The people who take God seriously have the freedom to laugh with mirth. They're jolly. They have bellies of jello. To go with the night before Christmas. Um, and so I know that I'm walking humbly with God when I can laugh at the silly things I do. And when people point out that I'm being a fool, I can laugh at myself. That's where, so walking humbly with God is getting our seriousness in the right place. Now, I'm not going to laugh about how I mistreat God or break his commandments. A lot of scoffers out there doing that. I'm taking him seriously and not myself seriously. This is what it looks like to practice walking before a present God. And I hope that this Christmas we can live present with the present God. And I think one of the ways, okay, Christmas, you're like, yeah, we're all pretty good at doing justice. It's like the time to give and the time to love each other and give gifts. And it's like, great, but we're not always good at the humble part of Christmas. Christmas is an awful lot of activity, an awful lot of, we've got to get this done, an awful lot of parties, an awful lot of, it's just serious. Let go a little bit and just like trust that Christmas is about what God's given to us. And it is. That's the gospel. Nowhere in the gospel to say you need to. It is just what God has given, and it's whether or not we receive it. That's the gospel. And that's what humility looks like. Humility is not, I got it, I got it. Humility is, thank you. Thank you for getting it. Okay, so the quiz, is God A, absent, B, distant, C, present, Well, you may say what you want, but the true test is, are you doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? That's when you know you take the incarnation, the promise of his presence with us, among us, in us, 
more seriously than you take yourself.